Hi, and welcome to the 47th episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This episode, we're talking with David Gunkel, author, academic, and technologist. We chat about AI as ideology, why write the robot's rights book, what are rights, and the assumption of human rights, the topic of computer ethics, supporting environmental rights through the endeavor of robot rights, visions of social AI, and much, much more. You can find more episodes from us at machine-ethics.net. You can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can follow us on Twitter, where we are machine underscore ethics, on Instagram, machine ethics podcast, and you can support us at patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thanks again and hope you enjoy. Hi, David. Hi. Thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. Um, Thanks for spending this time with me to talk about all the things, um, AI, robots, rights, and the books that you've written, all these sorts of things. Could you please first just introduce yourself, um, who you are, and what do you do? Okay, so I'm uh, David Gunkel. I um, am professor of media studies at Northern Illinois University, where I've been for, Lord, it's got to be the past 20 years plus now, so it's been a while. Uh, I have my formal training mainly in philosophy, and in that brand of philosophy we call continental philosophy. But at the same time that I was going to graduate school, I paid for the bad habit of uh, going to school by being a web developer. So I have uh, also a a programming background uh, working with uh, web apps and, and developing applications for the internet. Awesome. Great. I was going to ask you about that later on, but we can actually start with that if you want. Where, where do these kind of things intersect? Or is it just a kind of a happy accident that you're both kind of like a sort of technical person? And also, um, you know, having read some of your work, um, quite a, a deep cover of different philosophy uh, traditions. There's a, there's a lot of uh, kind of um, reference in your work to lots of different ways of thinking about the subjects that you're trying to talk about. Um and we'll talk about that in, in, in your books and things like that in a second. But how do those things inter- intersect for you? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question because it, it really is a result of not being able to make a decision as an undergraduate. Um, you know, we ask 18-year-olds to know what they want to do for the rest of their lives, and we don't know, right? And we sort of stumble around in the wilderness hoping to bump into something that makes sense. And when I was stumbling around in the wilderness trying to figure out my majors as an undergraduate, I was drawn in the direction of media studies on the one hand and philosophy on the other hand. So the way I resolved that sort of dilemma was to do both. <laughs> so I double, <laughs> I double majored in, in communication and philosophy. And when I went to graduate school, there became opportunities to work in uh, digital media development um, because I was in graduate school at the time that the web is just exploding um, and becoming popular. And there was a need for people to develop web content, but no real um, sort of uh, process by which to credential people to do that, right? It was, it was sort of, at that time, we were all making it up on our own, right? And, and sort of making this thing happen. So I was able to get into it very early and do some work for industry um, while I was going to graduate school, which was a, a nice way to go to graduate school because it kept me grounded, I think, in the world of uh, actual applications. Um, and took me out of the heady realm of, of the graduate experience. Um, and that must have kind of um, led you into some of your work or because a lot of it, it covers um, the digital worlds, uh, virtual worlds, 
artificial agents um, and remixing and, and, and all that sort of stuff that comes with that digital technology. So you, do you think you were somewhat influenced by having that practical start, I guess? Yeah, w- without a doubt. I would say, you know, in the early part of my career, I was very much involved in what was at the time called internet studies, right? And the idea mm-hmm. that digital media was creating these uh, virtual spaces and in, in, ex, experiences. And so there was a lot of uh, talk about that business, I think, in the early stuff I did. And then somewhere in the early 2000s, um, we begin to see artificial intelligence be, be taking a more prominent role in shaping our uh, involvement with our technologies. And so uh, somewhere around the machine question, there's this pivot um, to uh, much more emerging tech uh, related to AI and robots. And that's kind of where I've been since that time. So at the beginning of the podcast, we always ask this one question, which I think has probably dual answer with with um, you, uh, David. So what is AI? And probably it would be nice to also make an extension to what is robotics or what is a robot? Yeah. So these are really good questions because I think these terms kind of work like time in the Confessions of St. Augustine, right? We all kind of know what they are until somebody asks us to define it, and then we don't know what we're talking about because it's all over the map. So the way that I operationalize both of these for the work that I do is to look at them historically and how they have evolved over time and, and how the terminology has been built out by various contributors who've tried to think about these things, but also look at them um, with regards to a bigger perspective that is not only technological, but also uh, takes into account the social, political, cultural embeddedness of these kinds of ideas. So I would say artificial intelligence, although we think AI is technology, I think AI is an ideology, right? It's, it's It's an ideology for the way that we think about intelligence and the manner by which we assume that what we do as intelligent creatures is something that could be manufactured in an artifact. And for that reason, I like to look at AI not just as a set of technologies, because it's not a technology, right? It's an ensemble of technologies. And sure enough, there are technologies involved in that process. But I also like to look at it as a cultural ideology having to do with how we think about thinking and how we think about ourselves as thinking things. Robot is a also interesting piece of terminology because it actually arrives to us out of fiction, right? The term robota, um, which we get out of uh, Carl Chapik's um, RUR uh, in the 1920s, is a word that originally uh, meant, and it's still today in Slavic languages like Polish and Czech, robota is worker. Right, um, and oftentimes connected to uh, forced labor or slave l- labor, but e- even that's a stretch because robota, especially in Polish, which I know, uh, I don't know Czech, but Czech and Polish are very close in this area. Um, robota is just the word for uh, to, to work. Robich is the Polish word for work, right, uh, as a verb. So uh, Czapik sort of repurposes this word in his stage play from 1920 to talk about these artificial servants. And so unlike artificial intelligence, which is really the product of a uh, Dartmouth conference uh, that was put together um, in the 1940s, robot is the result of fiction. And we have evolved that term 
from fiction into science fact, right? But we still, I think, bear the legacy and the burden of how that term was developed in our fiction. And I know roboticists will often argue with themselves about how uh, important or unimportant science fiction is to understanding the work that they do. But I do think that uh, because of the etymology of the word and its connection historically to um, the stage play, that science fiction cannot be sort of extracted from the science fact of the robot as it stands today. So you've kind of outlined the, the cultural um, um, beginnings of robot. And I really love the idea that the, the AI is, is basically AI is a ideology. And it's almost like when we see, when we kind of realize that ideology, we could probably give it a different name because it's actually going to be something other. It's going to be some sort of combination of technologies, which might we actually might call something else. But the endeavor of AI is a, is an ideology in itself. Um, I, li I like the, the the way you kind of talk about it like that. Um, do you think? Um, I mean, on a real practical level, do you have uh, things which you call robots? I mean, you know, which are somewhat divorced uh, from this cultural artifact or the artifice idea, and that are are ob objects in in reality. You know. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to borrow from my uh, colleague, jo Joanna Bryson, and she will argue that this thing, the smartphone, is a personal robot, right? It's an object that we carry around with us that supplies us with all kinds of support and connection and information um, and really is essential for us to operate in the world today. Most of us, if we were without that object, we would somehow feel lost and unable to orient ourselves to the world in which we reside. So yeah, it doesn't walk around. It doesn't look like R2-D2. It doesn't talk to us like C-3PO, although I guess with Siri, it does talk to us. Um, but it, it does play the role that we generally accord to the robot companion in our fiction. And it just takes, you know, its form factor is a little different. But I think the, the smartphone is a really good example of a personal robot as you know it stands today mm. and, and this might be a kind of a semantic issue but why didn't you call your so your latest book um 2018 robot rights why wasn't it called ai rights or was that kind of an a alliterative um, issue <laughs> rather than anything else yeah so it it is due to two things one is the alliterative part R robot rights sure. just sounded kind of cool right because then you had the alliteration in the title. Um, mm -hmm. But it also was, at that time, there was very little talk of AI rights, but there was a lot of talk about robot rights. And I think it's because of some rather high-profile uh, public events that were put on um, by Noel Sharkey and Alan Winfield and a few other people in England, where the press was asking them about robots and about moral and legal status. And so the, the terminology robot rights kind of became... Um, a, a thing, uh, for lack of a better descri description. So it was already in the ether, whereas AI rights hadn't quite really been recognized as something that was worth talking about. But I, I would say that the way the book develops, it sort of develops a, stra a strand of thinking that affects both AI and robot, right? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I think that's how I viewed it, because the, the distinction isn't always obvious, right? Um, as you were saying in your... your introduction there's this kind of sticky issue where robots inhabit ai-ness 
we have this uh, you know combination of ideologies which in, are technologically uh, created <laughs> i'm trying to um, not mix metaphors here but um so you have this embodied ai situation is what is quite often how people talk about it but then you can also have this uh, bodiless ai but again it's somewhat not it's kind of like almost not a thing uh, uh, bodiless ai if you you know take it to the nth degree and it has and part of your definition is that it has um effect on the world and if the world affects it then there's probably uh very few ais that actually have nobody completely or um but i guess it's um anthropomorphizing those kind of robots which look more or behavior more or can we can relate to more like uh humanoid type things than we are it's almost like we are easily labeling these things categorizing them as robots because of that fact rather than because of any of a kind of more sensical logical reason for doing that i just kind of gone on a tangent there uh <laughs> no well, no and, and you know part of it is is because the book is a really a massive literature review right i mean it's it's looking at the current literature on the subject and trying to take it apart and see who's arguing what from what position and what it all means um, I had to work with the lack of terminological precision that exists in the literature itself. And so you had people using the term robot AI in, you know, substituting one for the other without any sort of rigor mm. as to what these things delimited. And I needed to have at least a flexible enough uh, terminological framework to be able to respond to the range of different literatures that were being developed by people from all kinds of different fields and the choices that they made for terminology really needed to affect how I took these things up and dealt with them. Yeah, yeah. The the book is called Robot Rights or Robot Type Thing Rights, I guess. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, what is it that drove you to produce this book? Because it's quite a, a deep um, dive into um, how you might think about giving something which has created some sort of personhood um, and and thinking about um, how you get to that conclusion. But what what is the, the initial spark that actually makes you want to do that? Why should robots um, be considered as um, moral patients and, and agents at all? Like what, what drove you and excited you about this area that, that made you write this book? So I think it's probably two interweaving sort of conceptual ideas that came together uh, to make this happen. One is my undergraduate education in philosophy is really in environmental philosophy. And so I spent a lot of time working on environmental rights, environmental ethics, and things like this. And I became fascinated with the way that um, human beings have divided up their world into who versus what. Right? Who counts as another moral subject and what is a mere resource that we can utilize and exploit? And the history of moral thinking has been a sort of uh, ongoing challenge to that dividing line between who and what. So at one point we said, well, animals, no, animals don't count for anything. We can abuse them. We can use them, do whatever we want to them. And Descartes even went so far as to say, you know, he did not think that animals even had uh, consciousness or sentience, uh, that they were just resources. Um, and then you get the innovations of animal rights with Peter Singer, Tom Regan, and a few other people, right? And that starts to change the way we think of animals and our responsibilities to animals. 
something else happens later after that in environmentalism, where we think about the protection of the environment not as doing it for the sake of us, but that it has a dignity, that the, that the earth itself needs to be cared for. And so you have, I think, a lot of uh, return to indigenous ways of thinking uh, to try to reason through how Western society became this very exploitative way of thinking about the environment versus a more uh, indigenous way of thinking about the environment as a companion, um, as another being to which we owe respect and have responsibilities. If you push that further, you then begin to look at artifacts. Now, in law, we do extend personhood to corporations, and that's a reason, you know, we, we do that in order to, to make them subjects of the law. But I began to be fascinated with this idea of moral expansion and moral progress, and whether or not there would be a moment at which we would think that artifacts, robots, AI, whatever the case is, would also factor into this kind of reasoning process where we would think maybe we have some responsibilities to artifacts of our own design. So it was sort of a thought experiment, but that, that, that's the one strand. The other strand that came together to sort of make this book possible is that as soon as I began examining that question, whether artifacts could have moral status or legal status, I discovered that this was a polarizing question among technologists, but also among philosophers. It's kind of like the abortion question in technology, right? You're either really for it or you're really against it. And I became fascinated by the fact that this question had this ability to sort of parse the room in the two camps, those who were vehemently opposed and those who were vehemently in favor. And I wanted to know why. I wanted to know why this, this, this question, the, the machine question is what I call it in the earlier book, um, but why this question produced this kind of reaction and what sort of assumptions, what metaphysical affordances, what sort of um, you know way of understanding the world led to parsing up reality in such a way that allowed people to make these very uh, almost extreme arguments one way or the other. So I didn't have at the time a horse in the race. You know, I was just interested in why this argument, why this debate, why this uh, contentious response to what seemed like a rather simple question that extended a rather reasonable way of thinking about the world that had worked for a couple hundred years already. Yeah, and I feel like you have your your kind of other side of the coin position from people like Joanna Bryson, who are kind of diametrically opposed to seemingly this way of thinking about machines. Do you feel like these that kind of opinion is wrong, or or is it just um, part of that argument, part of that conversation? Right. So you know, it's a good question. I I wouldn't say wrong, but I would say mm. it is informed by some metaphysical assumptions that n don't necessarily hold when you try to build the argument. Right. So what what I find with both sides of the argument are ways of constructing the debate that really mobilizes ways of thinking that I think don't hold up as you begin to pursue it further. Um, so I think there's like, you know, in the people who are opposed to this way of thinking, there is a residual humanism that they just don't want to let go of. And that humanism 
on the one hand, opens up some opportunities for great deal of, of human history and, and what we've done, but it also can be faulted for creating the Anthropocene, right? I mean, when we put the human at the center of the universe and make everything else into a resource that serves our needs, we find ourselves exploiting the Earth, right? Exploiting the other creatures that occupy this planet with us. So what concerns me is, you know, what arguments are being mobilized, what assumptions are being utilized, what sort of um, metaphysical affordances are in play, and what are the consequences of holding to that way of thinking, and, and what new opportunities might be uh, available to us when we start to open these things up and, and crack open these uh, sort of uh, often unquestioned assumptions. Yeah. And, and one of the things that you stipulate in uh, robot rights, if I'm getting this correctly, is that it's it's um, really interesting that you talk at the beginning about rights and what rights are. Is a presumption about rights, and the presumption is that um, rights have to be the same across the board. So, if you uh, and which is really nicely uh, put in your in your book that yeah, you know, rights is this kind of term that we can use, but it doesn't mean that robots or other things need to have the same rights or the same um, types of things extended to them, but we should probably consider what types of things that are extended to, extended to those things. Um, and there's a sticky situation of kind of like, what do you, um, what things do you consider things and what things you consider not things or, you know, persons or whatever you wanted to call it. But um, do you have this kind of intuition about what kinds of rights, if not all rights, um, as in human rights, what kinds of rights might robots benefit from and, and, and why? Yeah, so this is a really good question. And I would say if there's anything that I'm currently really uh, working on and concerned with is to try to bring it to this conversation a much more precise understanding of what rights are and how rights operate. I think we all value rights, right? Everyone talks human rights. It's a very important component of contemporary political discourse. And it's, you know, no one's going to say, I'm against rights, right? It's just not a position anyone's going to mm -hmm. occupy. But when you ask people to actually define rights, it's like, well, yeah, you know, it's this thing and we kind of know what it is. But we don't really have a good formulation of what rights are. And because we lack that, having this conversation really is deficient in its ability to talk. Oftentimes what I find is that the two sides in this debate are debating from different positions of what they understand rights to be. And so they meet in the middle and they have this, this vehement, you know, sort of back and forth, and they're not even talking about the same thing. So what I like to do is take the word rights which already in 1920 an American jurist named Wesley Holfeld said, you know, most people who are in the legal profession don't even understand rights. And they often use the term in very inconsistent ways, not only in a single decision, but even in one sentence, right? So he breaks down rights into what he calls the four molecular incidents, claims, powers, privileges, and immunities. And his argument is, if we look at rights in that form, very specifically, a very specific claim to something, which then has the obligation on another person to respect it or not respect it, or a power or an immunity to some um, imposition, we can get a much better understanding as to what it is we're talking about, and hopefully when we have these debates, agree upon the 
very basic foundations of what rights are before we get involved in making wrong-headed assumptions about what we think the other side is arguing. So the biggest problem right now is I think both sides assume that rights must mean human rights. And that when we say robot rights, we're saying, let's give robots the vote. Let's give robots the right to life and all these other crazy things uh, that you might hear uh, either side of the argument making. And I think that really steers the conversation in entirely the wrong direction. I would argue that any rights that would accrue to a robot will be very different from the set of rights that accrue to an entity like a human being. There will be sets of animal rights that will not be the same as the set of robot rights. There will be uh, environmental rights that may have overlaps with what we recognize for a robot, but would never be the same. Part of the problem, I think, that we have in addition to defining rights is that in our legal ontology, we operate with only two categories of entity. We have persons or property. And this is something we've inherited from the Romans. If you go back to Roman law, um, there were persons who were subjects of the law and had rights and duties, and there was property. And so, for example, the pater familias, who was the only individual recognized as a rights-holding individual in Roman law, was the male head of the household. Everything else, his wife, his children, his animals, were his property that he could dispose of and sell into slavery or do whatever he wanted to do with them. From where we stand right now, that's a crazy idea, but that's the way the Romans organized their world. But we did inherit their division between person and property. This is why now, when you want to protect a river, like in New Zealand, the indigenous tribe asks for the river to be recognized as a legal person. It isn't because they think the river is a person, necessarily, but it's because they recognize the only way to get legal protections for that piece of property is to get it to be recognized by the law as a person. So I think in addition to uh, being able to define rights more specifically and clearly, we also need to recognize that we're working with a legal ontology that has some archaic uh, connection to Roman law and that imposes on us some divisions that are very artificial and that make uh, our world uh, more constrained uh, than it perhaps should be. Um, I mean, for me, is the answer just we need more categories and then there will be a hard problem of um, asserting what fits into what categories. But if we, uh, we are left in the situation where we have property and personhood or objects and people, could we fulfill that in some way that will then make it easier for us to then um, attribute some of these um, rights? Because there will be a subset of rights. There wouldn't be human rights because they're not persons. There might be something other than persons right. which have a, a different set of, of rights, right, um, that we can kind of operationalize in this way um, for rivers, but also for robots and AI. So I, I think we see our legal system straining in that direction right now. Um, I think you see it in the debates concerning corporate personhood and the recognition that with multinational corporations, the status of person um, is something that seems to be counterintuitive to the way that we often think about um, what is a person. We also see it being challenged, I think, in environmental law, where people are using um, the category of person to gain protections for environmental objects and, and, and land features, etc. So I think already our legal system is straining in that direction, um, straining against those Roman categories and trying to come up with a more 
fine-grained way of understanding the uh, legal categories that we'll be dealing with. But there's two problems here. One is law changes very slowly, and it will be a long time before I think we see um, any sort of traction on developing something that begins to break out of that binary distinction. Second, law is very local, right? What happens in one jurisdiction will not be the same as what happens in another jurisdiction. So you'll find that in one part of the world, uh, the idea of personhood is easily expanded to these things. In another part of the world, the idea of personhood is not easily expanded to these things. And so you get this very differing set of patchwork laws across the world. And oftentimes we're dealing with things that are global in perspective, right? So that a rainforest in Brazil is not just a Brazilian concern, right? Even though it falls under Brazilian law, um, Bolsonaro's government can burn it down and do other things, but it does affect the rest of the, of the, of the, you know, of the planet. And so you have to understand that, you know, even though the laws are regional or local, they do have international impact. And so I think those two things make this a very complicated procedure. Um, but I do think we're moving in that direction and we, we do see signs that there is a desire to move in that direction. Mm, well, that's really positive. I mean, especially for the environmental picture, you yes, know, yeah. it, it'd be great if we could get there sooner. But um, do, do you think um, there's like an imperative from the the view of the AI or the robot themselves to have some sort of rights? I mean, yeah, I think there's a lot of um, it, reference in the book to agency and patienthood, um, kind of the ethical terms. Um, as a an ethical patient, is there an imperative to have some protections, have some claims, have some um, powers and, and immunities? Right. So this is a nuance in this whole debate that is important and I think crucially important. The reason that we give animals moral patiency or that we extend to animals various rights is because of what we think they deserve, right? Because they're sentient and therefore they deserve not to be harmed. And so this idea that, you know, there's a sort of uh, dignity to the other that needs to be respected, and that's the reason we confer the rights, um, that's one strand of thinking in this moral expansionism. That doesn't work when you get to environmental objects, right? Um, a waterway isn't going to feel one way or another if you dam it, right? So when, when, when you dam a river, it isn't like the question of the river's right is a question of what will the river feel when you dam it. It's more a matter of what will be the impact of that dam on the larger ecosystem? What will be the impact of that dam on uh, the social world in which that river occupies an important role with regards to the people, the animals, the places that uh, that river serves. I think the AI and the robots will be more of the latter than the former. I think there's a lot of a lot of arguments go like this, and it's a, it's a credible argument. It says, well, right now we've got robots, but they're pretty stupid, and they don't really feel anything, and they don't really think, and they don't have consciousness, so we don't need to worry about them. They're just tools. Mm. Once they get conscious and they can think for themselves or be sentient or whatever, then come and talk to me and we'll have the rights conversation. That is a way of thinking that I think is really rooted in the animal rights understanding of things. In my understanding of where we're at right now, 
Even these dumb objects might need rights, but might need it for the same reason that the river needs rights. Not because of what the object might feel, but because of what it might do to us. Because of what it might mean for our legal systems. What it might mean for our moral uh, affordances with regards to the world in which we live. So I would like to look at it in a more macroscopic view as opposed to this sort of microscopic view that drills down into the entity and says, why does this entity need this? I would rather say, why do we need this? Why is, it, why is this something that serves the needs of the larger community? And how does that uh, play for us on a larger scale? I think um, that really makes sense. Uh, and the, the uh, Rither analogy actually is um, pretty useful in this, um, in this way, I think. Um, and on a practical note, I think we see those things already happening, right? We, you know, anecdotally, you talk about kids uh, talking back to Siri and Alexa and um, learning kind of bad habits about how you kind of interact, like the relational aspect of that, the social relational aspect. How do we relate to things and how um, does that actually guide our own development and our own thinking about um, the world? Um, so it almost sounds like... Um, um, have you heard about computer ethics? <laughs> this is, is kind of a... Um, I, re I read um, in my research a while ago that computer ethics was kind of this um, cute sort of kind of practical thing which was concerned with breaking computers, right? Yeah. So if you if you don't shut it down before you turn it off, it's going to break. You know, you're going to ruin the hard drive because these things were back in the 80s and, and it, you know, uh, much more fragile and, and um, less robust than they are now. Um, so there's this idea about how you treat the machine, how you treat the computer in a way that it won't break and you will be able to get your work done faster and, and all this sort of stuff. But it's almost a, a nice kind of analogy to, you know, we need to treat these things in a certain way and how we treat those things reflects both on us, but also on how we um, interpersonally relate to one another and how um, those things are as a system linked, um, you know, how societies develop and how we tell our stories about, you know, cultural artifacts and things like that. You know, if we start um, kicking the computer are we going to start kicking dogs? Are we start going? You know, right. how do these things then continue into our uh, to into our ideologies and into how our, we behave? Um, so I, I think is it it's already happening almost in a way, and maybe this conversation is actually about how we formulize how we then take computer ethics or how we take um, our relationship to things which then interact with us on a social level. So just two real practical versions of this. So um, remember Hitchbot, the hitchhiking robot? Um, when Hitchbot was making its way across the United States, it didn't get very far, right? It made its way across Canada, and, and then they tried it in the U.S., and it got you know to the East Coast, and it got to like Philadelphia or somewhere near, nearby, and then it was vandalized. It was you know destroyed. And there was this like outpouring of emotion on social media for the robot, Right from people is like, oh, poor Hitchbot, people killed you, or you know, you, you you were attacked brutally by vandals who did not care for you, and um, that kind of expression, I don't think, is an aberration. I think it's part of being human. Right? We mm -hmm. we express our emotion for things, and we invest in things. Another example is when Boston Dynamics was trying to um, demonstrate the stability of their Atlas and Spot robots, and they would have them walk around the office building, and they'd hit them with a hockey stick or kick them or things like this. And the 
again, outpouring of support for the robots on social media. Oh, poor Spot, why are they kicking you? And my colleague Mark Cockleberg wrote a really great essay called Why, uh, why Kick a Robot, right? Or is kicking, mm. is kicking a Robot Wrong? And it gets into a lot of this idea that human beings anthropomorphize things. And we oftentimes are told that this is a bug that has to be fixed. But I think it's a feature, all right? Anthropomorphism is a feature of sociality. And we're social creatures. And the way we make sense of others in our world is by anthropomorphizing them. Now, I think it should be managed. I think it's, it's a feature to be managed, not a bug to be eliminated. And how we manage it, I think we are only beginning to understand as we get into developing uh, more animal-like objects, more humanoid-like objects, more objects that seem to have intentionality, agency, and all these other kinds of things that we project onto them. But that if we're being honest with ourselves, we have to learn how to respond and respect those things um, as a social uh, uh, situation. Mm -mm. And, it, and by extension, it might be that if we have all th this framework already in place and, and things, the capacity or the capability of things will um, increase and we'll get to a stage where actually we need to extend these rights, then we already have a framework in which to do that. You know, we already have some sort of legal or ethical framework to go, oh, well, they have these rights at the moment, but actually they're, sh they're showing much more intentionality now. Um, in the way that they're implemented, and maybe they need to extend that. Right. And so, you know, part of my argument is I think instead of a wait and see approach, which says, well, let's just wait and see when the robots come to, to you know, our law court and ask for rights, then we'll give them rights. <laughs> right. I think right. rather that's a very science fiction scenario. Um, we see it in The Matrix, uh, the, the prequel to The Matrix. We see it in a lot of other science fiction films. Um, instead of waiting for that period, I think we need to get out in front of this for two reasons. One is we need to be prepared for the challenges that this is going to uh, present to our legal categories, our moral categories, our way of thinking about ourselves and our world. But it will also, I think, help deal with the challenges we face right now with the environment, right? Um, we are living through a moment of intense climate crisis. And I think thinking about these very difficult matters with regards to AI and robots also has a reverse effect in helping us to get the vocabulary and the mechanisms by which to talk about non-human, non-animal things that could have uh, sort of social standing or legal standing um, with regards to us. Awesome. Great. So let's do that then. I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> okay. I'll give you a couple of days, all right? Yeah, please, please do. <laughs> so we've got um, a little bit of a uh, general question from uh, Martin um, Cooney, Coonin, oh, right. on, on, um, who is um, at the University of Dublin, I think. Um, uh, he's at Limerick, but yes. I, Limerick, yeah. yes. Thank you. Um, and he, he was wondering um, whether you can talk about this area in terms of uh, kind of relational ethics and, and that idea. Um, if that if that factors so this notion of relational ethics is a development in moral thinking that tries to think sort of outside the box of the traditional moral systems of either virtue ethics or utilitarianism and deontology right and it is a social approach to ethics that recognizes that the moral relationship we have with others in the world is where the ethical impetus comes from. So 
in my own work, this really evolves out of not only environmental ethics, but also out of the work of Emmanuel Levinas, uh, who developed a form of moral thinking which puts the emphasis on the ethical relationship prior to the ontological decisions. So, as I said before, we divide up the world into who's and what's, right? That means before we make moral decisions about how to treat something, we have to make ontological decisions about what something is. And so we have to sit down and say, this is something that counts and therefore is afforded moral respect. This is something that does not count and therefore can be abused, used as a resource and is just a piece of property. But when you think about it, we don't sit in our room and categorize the world and then go outside and start interacting with it, right? We begin by interacting with the world. And so Levinas's point is we don't first de decide the ontology and then do the ethics. We engage the world in a way that already asks us to make a response to the other. Whether the other is another human being, whether the other is an animal, whether the other is a river or a robot. And that the ontological decisions, the who versus the what, are done in retrospect after we've already made choices, after we've already made decisions that have ethical uh, consequences. So the relational approach says, well, why not just be honest with ourselves? Why not just say we divide the world up based on how we interact with it as social creatures and put the emphasis on the social relationship prior to the ontological decision making? And that that will create, at least in Levinas's mind and, and people who follow him, um, a different way of doing ethics that is more altruistic, that is more realistic, and that doesn't require all of these metaphysical affordances uh, that typically get us into trouble when we try to make moral decisions. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> Do you think you can get yourself in sticky situations with that? way of thinking about ethics in the way that you um you might end up having subjective um moral outputs instead of more of an objective logical basis so you i could see you if you were talking about your embodied social interaction with something other and then someone else has a, that a different interaction that you can come to different outcomes. Um, is that some problem within that sphere? So I think it is a potential problem, but it's also an opportunity because mm. I think it opens up the space for dialogue about these matters that allows for us to challenge each other, to say, you know, your subjective response is this, somebody else's subjective response is that. And how mm. do those two things relate to each other? And how does that open the space of conversation about moral matters. So I, I don't think this is something that you can decide once and for all and say, okay, go out in the world and, and have at it. I think it's, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a dynamic process of ongoing negotiations and dialogue where somebody is always being challenged by someone else with regards to this decision-making and that that's the way we hopefully make progress in this project. Um I've kind of run out of questions. So do you have anything that you want to uh, pull on and um, threads that you would like to um, continue talking about or? I guess the, the, the only other thing I would mention that I think is crucial is to, to go back to this uh, idea of dialogue that I just talked about. 
I think mm. a lot of the ways in which these conversations have gone and the way these decisions have been made uh, has been, for lack of a better description, extremely European and Christian. Um, that we have really imported into AI ethics and robot ethics a very Euro-Christian-centered way of thinking about the world. And that's because um, not only are these technologies um, developed and centered in the global north, but also European philosophy has this kind of footprint that is uh, difficult for you know, us to see outside of. And I think there's a lot to be gained from looking at these matters on a larger global scale, and that there are uh, ways of looking at these problems and, and these uh, opportunities from different cultural perspectives that I think open up vistas that we didn't previously see or see available to ourselves. Um, so I think a lot can be gained, just as we did in environmental ethics, uh, by looking at indigenous thought. I think there's a lot to be gained from indigenous thought with regards to AI. We don't normally think about indigenous thinking and, and artificial intelligence as somehow being in contact with each other, but I think they need to be. I think there's things there that can happen and ways of opening up opportunities that we're missing. I think the same has to do with the way um, other cultures address these questions. If you look at the way the Japanese address a lot of the questions you and I were talking about today, the response you get out of Japanese uh, philosophers and scholars is very different uh, due to the way that that culture interacts with technological objects. And again, I don't want to say that one culture's way of doing this is better than another, but I do think the conversation between these cultural differences is absolutely crucial to moving us forward because if we think we got it right, I think that's where we get into problems. Um, I think we got to mm -hmm. look at how others have looked at it and sort of bring them into the conversation so that we can not only question our own way of thinking about things, but can see other opportunities that we may have missed. I think, um, is it, it it's the, the way of thinking in Shintoism, right? The, um, yeah. So yeah. In, in, in Shintoism, you have a very strong tradition of animism, right? And in the European tradition, especially out of Cartesian metaphysics, animism is completely, uh, you know, put to bed. I mean, it's not something that uh, a, a good European philosopher of the 19th century would take very seriously. Um, I do think there's something to animism. I, I don't think it's just wrong, right? I think there's something that is there concerning our experience of the world and that we need to understand where that comes from, what perspectives it opens up to us, and what new opportunities and challenges that it brings to the conversation. In the future... Um, David, um, do you think do you think we're heading towards a future where um, at first we might have more socially uh, adept tools, and then those tools will slowly uh, become members of the family? You know, there's a, a very strange distinction there, but you know, what I'm trying to say is we'll we'll be slowly moving towards some sort of ideological change with the technology you know technology is, is not going to slow down right um so we're going to be producing more interesting cleverer uh, more intelligent in air quotes here um systems that will be able to perform different and and more complex tasks and as those tasks develop we'll become uh we'll anthropomorphize them more but also their capabilities will just be more so you know we'll we won't need to actually anthropomorphize them as much because they will actually be inhabiting some of those behaviors. 
themselves. Um, is that something that is that going to play out? You know, is that definite? And then and that, at that point, you know, we're already in a sticky situation of uh, what are these things? Are these things going to be um, incorporated in, in different ways? Um, is, is that the vision that we have? So, yes, I, I would say that, that that probably is a good explanation of, of how technological progress will affect this, right? But I also mm -hmm. think we have to look at how our own social processes affect this. So, uh, for example, here, here's, here's, the, here's the puppy, right? This is a German short hair pointer, right? And I think of how the dog has changed with regards not to the dog itself, but regards to how we interact with the dog as a creature in our world. So my grandfather raised these dogs, but in his mind, these dogs were gun dogs, right? They were for hunting. So they were considered tools. And from a great deal of human history, dogs were tools for herding, for working, for hunting, you name it. So what did my grandfather do when he had a dog that wouldn't hunt? Well, you did with the dog any, what you did with any tool. You disposed of it. And for my grandfather, that meant take it out back and shoot it. Now, from where we stand at this current point in time, this seems absolutely barbaric, right? This seems like a really horrendous thing to do. But at the time that he's doing that, it is completely reasonable and logical. You have a dog. The dog's job is to be a tool for hunting. This dog doesn't hunt. It's a broken tool. Dispose of it. Today, it's entirely different, right? This dog is a member of my family. I'm not even a dog owner, right? When I go to my vet, I'm called a pet parent. I don't buy a dog. I adopt a dog, right? Mm. So the, the role of the dog with relationship to us is different. Now, the dog hasn't evolved beyond where it was a couple hundred years ago. What has evolved is our social relationship to the dog. And I think just as powerful as the technological advancement will be, there will also be a very powerful sociological advancement in the way that we respond to these objects because of the way they're created, because of the way they're marketed, because of the way users use these things. Because designers can do anything they want. Users will always subvert designers. So they can design something and say, I'm designing this intentionally to be a tool. But users may undermine that completely by the way they incorporate it into their world. So I think we have to keep an eye not only on the technological advancement, we have to keep an eye on the sociological advancement. Because I think that's going to come first as these things change their position with regards to us. Awesome. Um, that's a really good point. I, I really like that. Um, it's almost what I left out of the picture, right? This the the cultural relationship that we have uh, and which is going to build alongside um all these technological um innovations basically um so we're getting towards the end now um is there the last question we always ask our interviewees is what are the things that really excite you and what are the things that might scare you about this technologically mediated future that we're going to be moving into so the thing that really excites me, I think, is a lot of what we've talked about today, this idea that the way these artifacts are coming into relationship with us is really challenging us to think outside the box, not only about ourselves, but also our relationship to our world, to animals, to the environment. And I think, in a sense, these can be a, a kind of object lesson for rethinking our moral commitment to the entire universe of objects that uh, concern us. 
And that, I think, could only have positive impact as we begin to take greater responsibility for the way we live on the planet and the way we care for the planet. Um, and that, I think, is of crucial importance right now in the face of climate change and the devastations that we're seeing across the globe. This doesn't mean that we marginalize questions of human rights or human dignity. It means we roll that into a much broader perspective of the world that we occupy that can make room for these other things. That is what really excites me and makes me very optimistic. I think what makes me pessimistic and worried is that manufactured objects are things that are done by people in power. Right? We create these objects and it takes money, and money requires the power to be able to accumulate the capital to make these objects, to distribute these objects, to market these objects. What I'm afraid of is the way that the powerful will be able to use this challenge to their benefit, to the detriment of the majority of the human population. So I think behind everything we've talked about today, there is a question of power. There's a question of politics. And if it's done right, it will be open, transparent, and democratic. If it's done wrong, it'll be authoritarian and totalitarian. And I think alongside all of these really interesting innovations and moral thinking and, and social relationships, etc., there is a political responsibility that we have to uh, take up and take very seriously because this is not going to happen automatically. It won't produce good results unless we are actively involved in making sure it produces good results and that we have got to do what we've always done, challenge the power when it is out of control and when it's abused in order to assure that we have democratic uh, apparatuses that can respond to these uh, opportunities and challenges. Um, great. Thank you very much. Um, that was a, a <clears throat> really um, interesting load of things we talked about today. I would love to talk to you some more, um, maybe another time. Um, that's all right with you, David. Um, if people want to pick up your book, follow you, um, interact with you, how do they do that? So you can follow me on Twitter at David underline Gunkel. That's my handle. Um, you can get all of my uh, publishable work that's available freely um, on my website, which is gunkleweb.com. And then the books, uh, the, the two books we talked about today, The Machine Question and Robot Rights are available from MIT Press. Brilliant. So thank you very much for your time. Sure. Thank you. It was wonderful talking to you. Hi, and welcome to the end of the podcast. Thanks again to David for spending the time with us. I really liked the idea of the environmental ethics coming in from this endeavor of kind of using rights as a way to explore the meaning of rights for different non-human entities and how we assert those rights and deal with those rights and uh, what kind of things those those rights could be. Um, I had a really great time with um, Jess from the um, Radical AI podcast. So she'll be on the next episode talking about all sorts of different things. Uh, technical and non-technical, so stay tuned. Again, if you'd like to see more episodes, go to machine-ethics.net. If you want to contact me, you can actually go to www.ethicalby.design and you can find information about uh, talks and consultation that myself and the other people who work with me do. And thanks again for listening. <laughs>